Welcome to the Tactics Meeting, Episode 12, The Environmental Unit and Alternative Response Strategies, with Dr. Elliot Taylor from Polaris Applied Sciences. Here in the Tactics Meeting, we talk to subject matter experts about response tactics and technology. Our expert is Dr. Elliot Taylor from Polaris Applied Sciences, and he's going to enlighten us on the work that Polaris does uh, in the U.S. and really around the world, and the inner workings of the environmental unit in particular. Elliot, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm looking forward to this. Well, as I do with everybody who comes on the program, we're going to start off by how did you get into oil spill response? This is not something that people choose as an elective <laughs> when they're picking out their minor in college. It's almost everybody that I talk to somehow or another got sucked into Exxon Valdez or, or similar. So how did it happen for you? Well, the good news, Dan, is that um, at least my, my degree was in oceanography. I, I, that's what I studied when I got into college and I went through, did my PhD, it was always oceanography and uh, much, very much oriented on, on the geological side. So I did everything from deep sea sediments up to coastal environments and coastal processes. Um, but you're right. I wasn't doing spill response back in 1989. I actually was a lecturer over at the Department of Geology at the University of Washington. And I was a visiting scholar doing some research with the university when the Exxon Valdez spill happened. <laughs> and uh, being aware of what was going on, you know, uh, it being in Seattle, we had actually only recently moved to Seattle. I had only been there for a year. And, but uh, everything that's happening up in Alaska is drawing, of course, a lot of attention up there. And as I reached out to a company that was set up in Seattle that was doing a lot of work uh, helping with the response. And in particular, they were looking at the shoreline uh, and the SCAT program. Um, actually, in those days, SCAT was barely out the door. Um, it was, you know, wasn't even really known that much. And uh, the company in, in Seattle, uh, you know, big engineering firm, is one that I had done work with in graduate school off and on. Uh, I had been doing environmental sampling programs with them in the Gulf of Mexico and off the North Slope of Alaska. So I was familiar with them and I visited them one day and they said, well, any time that you have available, we need people that understand what's happening in the coastal area and coastal processes help. Uh, so I started doing some pickup work while I was still teaching and finishing my research. Uh, I finished the teaching portion at the end of the spring quarter. And then they said, well, all the time that you have available, uh, we, we want to use you. And so I, that summer, I launched into being 
all the data management and support side of the, the response here in Seattle. So all the SCAT teams were sending their data reports in, sending photos in. This is in the day of actual print photos, um, you know, with canisters of film. And all this stuff is coming in. And, and I had a team here that was organizing it, sifting it, and preparing reports off of everything that's being observed up in, up in the, by the teams, the SCAT teams. And that, that was it for the next three years. That's what I was, I was either here or I was up in Prince William Sound actually on the beach itself doing SCAT work. But that, that was a right-hand turn in my field. I could have gone to continued in academics and research, but no, I went to consulting and uh, it's been oil spill response ever since. Yeah, that is such a common story. <laughs> you know, with Al Allen and uh, and you and and Gary Galt, and you almost need to get the uh, an Exxon Valdez reunion group to, oh. to, together. <laughs> yeah, well, we need to hurry it up because <laughs> some of some of some of those folks are going to be hard to find anymore. <laughs> well, hopefully we're, we're capturing some of that information for posterity right now. So how did Polaris Applied Sciences get, get started? So you were working for somebody else throughout Exxon Valdez. Right. Um, yeah, so, well, I continued with that company for a couple of years, and then I went out and did freelance. Uh, I, I did set up my own shop and was doing some freelance work. Um, uh, I, I was working uh, on a lot of projects with Ed Owens. Uh, he had set up his own shop, and we ended up on a number of spills with um, Gary Mouseth, who was at the time with Beak, and then he wanted to leave and set up uh, his own shop. And uh, so at one point we decided we, in, on one spill, why don't we just form a, a group ourselves instead of these into our, our own little shops? And so that's what happened. Uh, Ed, myself and Gary and Greg Challenger, we came together and set up Polaris and that was in October of 98. So uh, we've been Polaris Applied Sciences ever since. Are all the principals still there? Um, no, Ed is back to his own shop. He's back to o Owens Coastal Consultants, but literally downstairs from where I am. Um, so we continue to work jointly on quite a few projects. Um, and then uh, Mouseth is retired. So he's He's enjoying life up in the San Juan Islands and uh, and his grandkids, uh, but yeah, Greg and I are still uh, you know two of the principals, and then um, we have another principal, Andy Graham, with the company at present, and um, and continue doing the the same sort of work though. So there aren't that many oil spills of any significant size anymore. I mean, we obviously we had it. Deepwater Horizon, where I spent 105 days in the recovery group. I'm sure you spent much longer than that since SCAT went on for, what, three years, four years? Is it 
could still be going on for all I know. I lost track. <laughs> well, you're right. Uh, being part of the shoreline group, you are there for typically a lot longer than on water operations. And uh, that's the way it is. We were there for three years with Scott. And then there was another year, a little bit more of follow-up uh, monitoring that was done, particularly on some of the marshes. But um, yeah, we, we had our, all of our, our crew down there. Plus we had quite a few subcontractors that we've worked with over the years participating uh, on Deepwater Horizon spread between the Louisiana, Texas border all the way over to Florida yeah, and, and into Florida, clearly. So when you're not actively engaged in oil spill response, what other projects does Polaris engage in? What, what are your specialties? We do a lot of planning. Uh, so we work with uh, developing plans, spill contingency plans, um, response plans. Um, a lot of those, of course, in the U.S. were kind of past that phase, although recently we've done a lot with the rail industry um, as regulations came in place for uh, those operations. And, and likewise in Canada. Um, and we do a lot of training. Um, so uh, we're, we're working with people on preparedness uh, in, in everything from environmental unit or SCAT training um, to uh, natural resource damage assessment. A, a big portion of what uh, Polaris also does is uh, natural resource damage assessments. And we do those not just for spills, but uh, a lot of the work happens to be for groundings. Um, uh, when a ship runs aground, there's damage. Uh, there may be uh, damage associated with the grounding just by itself, as well as with removal or uh, the work that happens to salvage the vessel. And uh, we're, we, we're often called in to help and, and make recommendations on those and, and do an assessment of, of what the grounding impacts are. We, we had a, we couldn't be in Mauritius ourselves um, because of COVID issues, but one of our subcontractors was you know, in Mauritius and doing the assessment of the, during the Wakashio uh, grounding and then ensuing um, removal uh, to, to clearly identify what, you know, what the effects of the grounding were and any effects uh, and minimize the, and try to mitigate to the extent possible any further impacts from just the salvage operations. Um, so we, we get involved in, in, in those things as well. And a lot of coral reef, um, you know, so some of our team are, are you know, top class worldwide in, in coral reef damages and, and restoration work. So it's, that's a big, uh, another portion of what we do. And then I, I, I end up actually doing a fair amount of international work um, around planning. So we're just completing the uh, National Oil Spill Contingency Plan for Kenya. We recently helped Mozambique with theirs. Uh, we did um, a plan for Belize uh, just a couple years ago. Um, and, and it sounds great, but you don't get to spend a whole lot of time just you know hanging out on the beach when you're doing things like that. <laughs> 
although the travel is always interesting and meeting people and working with people in each of these countries is also very rewarding in itself. Uh, I know what you mean. I was down in Brazil when I worked with NG Resources for a oil spill drill with Shell. We were right across the street from one of the most famous beaches in the world. I was there for nine days. I walked on it once for 15 minutes. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like everywhere else, you know, you're in a hotel, you're in a windowless uh, banquet room, uh, you could be anywhere. And right. to that extent, I'm, I'm really liking the virtual command post thing <laughs> because if I have to be anywhere, I would just as soon be here. Yeah. You know, in yep. my office with my three monitors and you know, all the things that make me reasonably productive. And I don't have to worry about whether somebody's coffee is going to be any good or not. No, there's, there's a lot to be said for, you know, not having the, the extensive travel and, and just, you know, hours and sometimes days on aircraft and, and then even on the ground to get to some of these remote areas. If you're, you know, looking at, you know, we're, we did, all, we mapped all the shorelines of Angola. So, you know, it's an amazing project, but it takes a lot to get out to some of the remote areas uh, and, and be able to do that work. Um, if you're developed, we developed GRPs or GRSs for their priority sensitive areas. And the same thing, you, you can spend days in a, in a Jeep to get out to some of these places. Um, and, and of course you have to be aware of where the mines have been removed and where mines are still in, possibly in place. So, you know, there's a, there's, the, there's a lot of interesting things around the world that, <laughs> that this work has taken us into, that's for sure. Yeah, well, I, I was thinking, well, I'd like to go until you said the word mines and now I don't <laughs> want to go anymore. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so Polaris has been a part of the Washington State Maritime Cooperatives spill management team for a very long time. We cite Polaris as being the leaders of the environmental unit for our plan. And we have a drill coming up in May where you personally are going to be the deputy environmental unit leader. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the environmental unit and what you think it takes uh, in general, but specifically in Washington, to be successful in the environmental unit and maybe talk a little about staffing because so often I think we are, are understaffed or are slow to staff up. Mm. So you know, maybe share with, with our audience you know, what that initial ramp up would look like ideally. And then we're gonna be doing dispersants in our drill and I'd like to talk about what it takes to put together the materials that the region response team needs to have in front of them to give a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down for dispersant application. So let's start with the environmental unit. What do you think it takes to be successful there? Right, um, well, you know, here in Washington State, as, as you're aware, one of the 
first considerations under the Northwest Area Plan is that the uh, EU lead is going to be uh, you know, one of the state agencies responsible for their environment. So in, in our case, you know, Department of Ecology, it could be uh, Department of Environmental Quality down in Oregon, um, but that's gonna be, they're gonna take the lead. Um, now, that being said, a co-lead could be uh, somebody who represents the responsible party. Uh, so, you know, it might, in my case, I could be a co-lead along with uh, ecology um, here in the state or a deputy, uh, depending on the, on the, again, the situation. The, I, th I think one of the important things to recognize is that <laughs> anybody that's been in an exercise or been in an actual response here in this state knows, uh, very recognizes immediately that there's going to be a lot of attention and a lot of uh, expectations out of the environmental unit, the EU. And I think um, in my experience, particularly over the last decade or more, the uh, RPs, uh, experts and, and technical specialists that are part of the environmental unit have worked very well hand in hand with the, with the state um, and with the ecology in particular. So there's a, there's a good rapport um, and there's a good working environment. And that, you know, that's one of the benefits of just doing these exercises. We may not get many spills, great. Um, and the exercises really give you that face time and, and you know each other. So it becomes a, a very positive working environment. Um, and it's, it's not atypical that people that are going to show up early in the, in the response already understand what their roles and responsibilities are in, in the EU. I think um, one of the challenges, as with any group, uh, I, I subset group within the, an incident command post is, is doing just what you're saying, and that is recognizing what skill sets you need for this particular situation, for this particular incident, and then staffing up what your level of staffing needs to be and, and quickly get that into place. But it, um, in the EU, you, you, again, you're, you're going to expect somebody from ecology here in the state, um, and the RP presumably will, will show up with their um, co-lead or a deputy. And then you start staffing up from there, clearly. Uh, and one of the first things you're looking for is uh, some is understanding what the resources at risk are. Your RARs, you know, um, getting that information quickly pulled together uh, to to inform Unified Command uh, and establish what some of the priorities are going to be in terms of protection for uh, operations to implement. Now, our state here in Washington as in the Northwest has done a remarkable job at putting the GRPs together and identifying potential spill sources, scenarios, and what sort of the likely um, areas that, uh, that may be possibly influenced by the spill are going to be, and then have to identify priorities in those areas in terms of protection, initial protection priorities. 
that's a fantastic work piece of work that's been done over years. Um, and but it doesn't exist everywhere. So in our state, a lot of good stuff is already in hand. And we if you know how to tap it, find that information that that makes your your job as a you know uh, resources at risk specialist much easier. But you also have to know that they don't not, not everything is identified in resources at risk. Uh, you have to reach out sometimes to the specific area and look for some other possible resources that aren't captured in the in the GRS the, the GRPs. So you know staffing up. It's so much of it really depends on the situation uh, and what are going to be the challenges that you're you're going to be facing for a given scenario or a given actual event. So um, when I when I get the call, when Wismet gets the call, and I tell my watchstander, oh yeah, activate Polaris. And so you're going to get the watchstander who calls you on the phone and and will say the words worst case to you what, mm -hmm. what's, what's going to happen after that well the first thing you know, when first thing that runs through my head and I, I can only imagine a lot of people that are in this business think the same thing oh, what product is it um you know is it flashing off wouldn't that be nice or yeah. is it not <laughs> right right is it um, <laughs> yeah right is it is it Bakken crude with exactly. tons of light ins, and it's just going to evaporate over the next six, eight hours. Thank goodness, right? right? Flashpoint yep. of like minus 35 degrees Fahrenheit. Yes. Right? Yep. Or, or is it Alaska North Slope crude? That's which, right. Which we get a lot of here in Washington. Well, and that's it. Yeah, so, so, you know, what product is it? Where is the spill? And, um, and very, you know, immediately on top of that, you're going to be asking, where is it going? Where, where has it already gone? And where is it going? So how quickly are eyes and eyes on it? And how closely are we tracking this and then getting ahead of it and looking at trajectories? So, you know, getting your trajectory specialist in is, you know, another one of those areas that's either the situation unit or it's the environmental unit that's going to trigger um, a, uh, you know, a modeling, that modeling. Of course, with a, a major event, you're going to have uh, usually uh, an SSC, you know, somebody from NOAA, um, the scientific support coordinator called out to assist the FOSC, um, the Coast Guard for on, on the Marine side. So right away, you're going to probably be able to tap into the SSC and NOAA and, and start to get some modeling done. So you can get some trajectory modeling and, and some weathering modeling. Of course, all those applications, you, you've already had guests talking about GNOME and, and Audios and you know those models are available to anybody. So one could run the model themselves, but it always helps to, again, if, if, if you're looking at staffing, start to split the workload and and divide it up and identify the best individuals to handle certain tasks and so yeah one of the first things i would do is is look to um the ssc and know and say can i get trajectory models i i, I want 
trajectories because they're going to help give me a, a view outward of where the potential ramifications are of a particular incident. But I'm really, really going to rely on observations. I want good overflight information um, on a regular basis. Uh, I, I, I've actually designed and run quite a few exercises myself. And having been on real spills, sometimes where oil goes doesn't follow the trajectory. And um, one of my little pet peeves with exercises is when the trajectories are taken as, well, this is it. It says right here, this is where the oil is going. But did you see the overflight information? Yeah, but that doesn't matter. This sells, tells me where the oil is going. Uh, I'm sorry, but <laughs> you are barking down the wrong path now. You have real data in front of you of where the oil is. Go with that. And now we're going to try to recalibrate the trajectory to see why is it diverging and not matching up with what is actually seen. So that's a, you know, that's a challenge. And, uh, but getting eyes on is, is uh, uh, critical. So do you grab that NOAA scientific support coordinator and just drag him into the EU, sit him in a chair right next to you? <laughs> well, some of them I, I, I know quite well, and I, they, can, they can work wherever they want to, just as long as they're responsive and I can get, you know, they can get the information to us quickly. And then the, they're very good you know, of, of actually running, you know, going back and saying, well, if these are the overflight observations and, we're, and we have a divergence between trajectories, Internally, they go, they, they'll go back and, and query and, and reset the, the, you know, the program to, you know, maybe it's, uh, you know, you're using a, a wind vector or an effect vector or a dispersion factor that isn't quite matching the conditions on scene. So you go back into the model, tweak things, See if you can get closer to what the observations are and, and give you a, a closer forecast for the next round. So with the trajectory in hand, what's next? What's your next priority? Well, after you get the trajectories and, and you've already gone through the resources at risks, those, those are the, the, like the first things out the door. The next thing is really starting to get the um, moving your shoreline program into place, uh, your, your SCAT program. Um, you want to get that in place as quickly as possible to coordinate uh, and, and get some initial inf information um, directed towards operations when they're going to be looking at, uh, at anything they can do on the shoreline. And, and some, sometimes it's even things like pre-cleaning. Um, so, as quickly as you can, you want to get the shoreline component in there. You um, need to start thinking also about the sampling program. And particularly if the air monitoring um, is going to be a big one in terms of safety. Uh, so you want to get some air monitoring out there. Uh, you need to do sampling uh, in terms of uh, uh, water uh, analysis, water uh, 
you know, what's what's exposed and and, and to what degree, you know, how how far is uh, as this product is it making it into the is it is, is it all a surface spill or or do you have um, dispersion into the subs you know into the water column natural dispersion into the water column um, and then of course you're as you pointed out you're going to be looking at uh, alternative um, response techniques so you're going to be looking at uh, are are is this something that we want to consider dispersants for or in situ burning um, and um, you know, it, and, and, and start that movement in place. Of course, usually you'll get those instructions coming from the Unified Command um, they, if, if those are going to be uh, considerations. I mean, in, in some places, they're not a consideration. It's just off the table. Um, so you don't necessarily need to spend your time there. But in, in, you know, depending on, this, on the oil and the situation and where it's located, you know, some of these could be very viable response techniques to accompany the standard techniques of mechanical containment and recovery. So those, those things would uh, need to start happening very quickly as well. Um, and then, of course, you've got um, your messaging uh, for environmental, uh, fact, uh, environmental uh, messages for both operations as well as for public information. And um, you will probably, or at some point, going to have to start thinking about the, um, the uh, particularly when we're dealing with, with shoreline and response operations and, and some of these alternative countermeasures, are, um, endangered species. So you're, you have to collaborate on uh, with uh, NIMS and uh, US Fish and Wildlife Service on, on endangered species and what restrictions might be out there for uh, operations and overflights and uh, even response on the shoreline. And, and um, your, your federal and uh, state historic preservation officers uh, you know, for the section seven consultations or 106 consultations. So those are things that all need to be done and, and, and considered um, pretty early in the response. The good news is if, if the FOSC and the state are mobilizing their team, you're, you're, the EU is, is quickly building up with not just um, people representing the responsible party, but you're getting a lot of staff from agency side as well, um, either remotely or in person. Um, and, and, and you can uh, obviously place a lot of reliance and, and know that you're going to get help from the, particularly the agency people on, on a lot of the consultation issues. Let's assume that the Unified Command establishes an objective of considering aerial dispersants as an alternative strategy and we are gearing up towards a unified command decision meeting and moving towards the RRT meeting. What does that take for you in the environmental unit to put that material together and get ready to make that pitch? It, well, again, uh, one of the things that really helps 
us in this task is that the Northwest Area Plan has a very clear guidance on um, looking at dispersants and dispersant options, and, and then the steps that are recommended to go through in order to uh, do an, an initial quick assessment of whether it's viable, um, you know, dispersant application is viable, and then uh, and then to actually pull together uh, the a, a re transmittal for the RRT to consider it, um, given that uh, initial assessment, and a, and then a an actual uh, you know overall guidance for a dispersant operational plan, how how that would happen. And 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 I think again we we really benefit from having a lot of this in place already uh, laid out. You know, if you go into the Northwest Area Plan, um, I forget what the 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 annex is. It's um, the it's uh, ninety four oh six dispersants decision uh, for the Northwest Area Plan. But you know, the basic things are one. Um, we have in Washington state zones in marine waters where dispersants are either, nope, don't think about it. <laughs> B, it's possible. You can go through the checklist and see if that's gonna happen. Or, or three, yeah, this, this is a very likely area to go ahead and, and apply it. So sort of a pre-approved zone, a conditional zone, and then a no-go zone. Um, so that's one of the first things you have to do is Find out where, and this is where trajectories are important. Here's the spill, here's where it's going. So if, if today the FOSC says, Elliot, I need to get this process going. If, you know, it's, it's what? Three, four o'clock in the afternoon. I can tell you dispersants are not gonna happen tonight, okay? Um, by the time we get this pulled together, goes through RRT, we get stuff mobilized, very unlikely that we're going to be able to fly because we're only going to apply dispersants in daylight. Um, and I'm, I'm going to be running out of time here by the end of the day. Although but, we're really lucky now because the yeah. MSRC C-130 is sitting in Moses Lake. Well, that's true. That exactly. So I mean, it used could, to be sitting in Stennis, Mississippi, and it's like eight hours away. Now yeah. it's like parked in the parking lot. No, that's that's huge. I mean, we can get it. It'll be here. Well, as a matter of fact, you can mobilize it so that as soon as you get an, the nod, it's already loaded up in here. Um, so we could. It, it is possible that something like that could happen. You know, right away. Uh, even in because we still have daylight till what nine o'clock at night or something like that. Um, but. I want to know what my trajectories are because I need to know where the stuff is going because we're going to be a, a, um, assuming that the spill source is, is already controlled. If it's a continuous release, then we have new product showing up every day, um, every hour adjacent to the vessel. Um, we have it hasn't undergone any weathering, and we also know that you know if the spill source is is still leaking, then and it's within a zone, a conditional use zone, then we can start. You know, we even consider applying it there. Although, typically, you want to put mechanical containment recovery 
at the source because that's going to give you the greatest success. Um, and you're going to be looking at dispersants where it's more spread out and where mechanical is less efficient. So you're going to go typically downfield from your source to consider uh, dispersant applications. And that's where the trajectory comes in. Where is this moving? Um, is it moving into a no-go zone? Um, if it's moving into the no-go zone, okay, can I get there before it gets into that area? Um, so these are all you know, considerations. The other one is what type of oil? How is it weathering? Um, how long is it going to be dispersible? Once the viscosities get up to you know, 10,000, 20,000 centistokes, then it's, you can put dispersants on it, but the, yeah, and you might be able to disperse some, but you're going to have to put way more dispersant on it than your typical you know, 1 to 20 ratio uh, that you might want it to try to do with, uh, you know, when the viscosities hasn't really increased through the weathering process or emulsion. If it's, if it's emulsified, um, you're not going to be able to get that. So these are some of the things that you're going through in that initial checklist um, that the FOSC wants right away. Where's it going? How quickly? Um, how's that oil behaving? How's it weathering? Is it dispersible? What dispersants do I have? Are they approved? Uh, no. Of course, we any dispersants that are stockpiled are on the you know approved list, so that's that shouldn't be an issue. Um, and then, are we going to um, be monitoring? Are we prepared to monitor for efficiency and effectiveness? Um, so, are we in, do we have our smart protocols? You know, the the protocols for actually monitoring the application and the efficiency of the application. We have to go through the consultation process. Um, for wildlife um, considerations. So again, this is, you know, we'll re be reaching out to Fish and Wildlife Service, um, to NIMFS, um, and are, you know, are there restrictions or are, are there other considerations we need to deal with? Um, the, and, and of course with uh, the, in this case, the Lumi tribe, you know, are, are, we, are we talking about fishing grounds or other, um, sensitivities that we need to be aware of that dispersants and dispersed oil could possibly affect. Um, so those are sort of the quick things that we're putting together is, is in this initial checklist for FOC. If, if, if it's all looking good, then that goes up to Unified Command and saying, well, things are looking positive here. Um, maybe this is time to have that conversation with the RRT. And that's that's the next step, um, and that's that'll be unified command talking with the regional response team, um, and that that can go back and forth. You know, they may ask or suggest other conditions, um, certain constraints on application. Um, they may be asking for more monitoring, more sampling. Who knows? But that that discussion goes on, and then if it looks positive. Then comes back. Then we uh, formalize the uh, with operations what that dispersant plan is going to look like operationally and from a uh, monitoring perspective. I sat next to the dispersant group in Holma during Deepwater Horizon during the the heyday of uh, spray when they were just they were flying like crazy. And I think they were managing to pull off like 
20 sorties a day at, at that point. And uh, funny story has nothing to do with the dispersion application process, but you know, we were flying civilian aircraft and military aircraft. The, the Air Force was flying C-130s and the civilian C-130s were landing, they were taxiing off the runway, they were chalking the wheels, shutting down, doing a safety brief, PPE check, loading dispersants. Time on the tarmac, turnaround was a, a little over an hour per, for the aircraft. The Air Force was landing on the runway, leaning on the brakes while the rotors spun. These guys wearing their BDUs and t-shirts with sunglasses and just some nitrile gloves would slam that display hose on and fill it up like they were doing battle fueling right oh yeah and they were doing like 12 minute turnarounds on the tarmac jeez jeez i know it's it's so true um how different organizations work you know um and uh they, they some of them have all those protocols in place so that they don't shut down exactly they know what they okay this is how we're going to run this um <laughs> yeah well you know i don't i don't think of it as a bad thing i just think that's pretty cool you know because i was in the coast guard and you know i know how it is to try to you know be the quickest and they you know osha doesn't apply to them so they were doing their doing their thing oh yeah exactly wow now it's it's remarkable how you know once you once you get it the process in place, as with so so many things, once you have the kind of the basic process in place, every every day you're on it, you're just improving and improving and 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 finding out how you can be more effective and more efficient and, and how you can get things done quicker. And I on so many actual spills, this is one of those things you see over and over again, just the quickness and efficiency um just ramps up so quickly because you're you're the conditions are changing you're trying to get so many things in place in, in a very quick way yeah yeah you're just uh iterating all the all the time john murphy at gen west said i think he was quoting somebody else but we reserve the right to be smarter later right i'm, <laughs> I'm gonna be i'm gonna be better i think he was i don't remember who he was quoting but uh yeah, well, you know, I may not know, I may not be as good at it today as I'm going to be tomorrow. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So putting smart in place, like MSRC doesn't do the smart monitoring. They provide, uh, well, they'll be the quickest here to provide the dispersant application capability for, for us. Uh, we have, uh, NRC has some aerial dispersant capability. Clean Gulf has aerial dispersant capability. You know, OSRL internationally has dispersant capability. But who's going to get out and do this smart monitoring? The Coast Guard strike team has some capability to do some of that work. What's been your experience there? Um, yeah, well, we've, you know, it's, you, you do have the strike team, of course. Um, uh, you it, NOAA is typically well set up to um, have some of their uh, folks working uh, again uh, in a in concert with the SSC to support the smart monitoring and and then there's um, 
there's private resources, of course, that you can reach out to as well and, and um, to do some of the smart protocols as well. So a it would be a combination of looking immediately at, at what resources are available. The strike team, NOAA, and, and I mean, ourselves, you know, we, we, we have a fluorometer, for instance, that we've been out and we've, we've run alongside others um, to draw samples and look at, you know, potential effectiveness of disperse, dispersion into the water column. So in, in setting up the operational plan for dispersants application, that would be one of the things we to identify is, and again, that's, you know, we consult with the state, we consult with the, um, the federal side and the SOSC, SSC, and uh, we'll come up with um, who and where we would put uh, these resources out to do the, the monitoring during and, and following dispersant application. Here in Washington, I think around the country in general, but Washington, Oregon, California in particular, there's gonna be public outcry at the use of dispersants. And our messaging is going to be really important. You mentioned environmental messaging coming out of the, the EU. What kind of support do you provide to the public information officer for getting out messaging surrounding the use of dispersants? Well, uh, yeah, that's going to be very important. And again, this is where it's critical within the EU that we're working as a, as a team um, that we can put together that messaging. Uh, the things that usually you're going to be looking at, particularly with applying dispersants um, or any other alternative countermeasures um, are, is what's, what's the trade-off? What, what is the benefit gained by doing this? And what would happen if we didn't do this? Um, and that's really the better uh, one is able to present and that argument and, and, and present that information, the more successful it is. It doesn't mean that people are always going to buy into it, but at least you're putting and explaining the rationale of why uh, you're opting to use these, these other countermeasures to minimize the potential effects of the response itself uh, uh, and of the spill. And um, so it's, it's really explaining net environmental benefit or spill impact mitigation assessment. You know, the two terms that are used are NEBA and SEMA. Um, so what is, you know, when you use dispersants, what are you gaining? What are the drawbacks? Why are we using it? Typically, we're not gonna use it as the only countermeasure. We're using it to complement the work that is being done using standard uh, mechanical systems. And, 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 we're be, and we're focusing this, the use of, in this particular case, dispersants on one portion of the spill to minimize what is going to potentially be a shoreline impact more than anything else. Oil, that once it oil hits the shoreline, usually the impact and, and the, the effects of oil are gonna be much more significant than they are on the water column um, and, and what organisms and species are, are utilize the water surface, uh, diving birds and, and uh, ducks and, and anything that uses the surface and, and the immediate 
uh, water column below that surface. Usually we're talking about the top 30 feet uh, of the water column. That's once you apply that dispersant, that is where most of that dispersed oil is going to reside until it, um, like a cloud, until it becomes very diffuse and, and, and starts to break down. So one is to explain that the trade-off is that we're really minimizing that the, the impact of that oil on the, all the, the coastal shoreline and the shallow water resources. Um, and uh, and, and we're, we're going to live with a shorter term effect that's limited to the top part of the water column. Yeah, and in this area, there's a, a lot of Dungeness crab tribes have shellfish beds that we need to keep the oil out of if at all possible. I mean, that would be by itself a good use of dispersants if we could keep oil out of that coastal zone, out of the shellfish beds. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You want to keep it out of those. And, and, and again, those aren't necessarily right at the you know, shore line, uh, but they're subtitle, um, but they're shallow subtitle uh, up to a certain point. Certainly the shellfish that are being harvested are, are typically going to be in that in the shallower subtitle. And in the state, the restriction is 60, 60 feet. Um, I got a convert meters, but yeah, 20 meters, <laughs> 60 feet in the state of Washington. So, so that if you're using dispersants and, and you're getting dispersion again into the water column that you're not going to be really uh, exposing the, the organisms that are utilizing the, the seabed um, to high to any high concentrations, uh, you know, when when you're down at 60 feet, um, you're you're beyond that uh, zone where the dispersed that dispersed cloud is going to be uh, initially, and then uh, again that that tends to gradually become more and more dilute with currents, and, and the, you're limiting what's being exposed to that dispersed oil. Well, I guess we're lucky in Washington to the extent that it's pretty deep in most of our coastal area. I mean, the average depth in Puget Sound is over 300 feet off uh, turn point on, on Stewart Island. It's 1400 feet deep. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. we, we've got a lot of, of depth to work with and we have a lot of water movement and it's not stagnant. That water, that water moves, you know, coming out of, Guimas Channel, it runs over five knots. Coming down Rosario, three, four knots is common. So we get a lot of water movement, which helps with this process too. Absolutely, yeah. No, the combination of deeper waters and that fast movement are just, um, are going to be important in terms of very quickly diluting the, the dispersed droplets themselves and, and, and the fact that the, it's there, the con, there's no contact with the with so much of the seabed, um, and the, and and the zones in which dispersants would be approved, should they be, you know, should Unified Command go ahead with it, are going to be restricted to to deeper waters. So they're going to be restricted to 60 feet and beyond and deeper. So that 
you don't run the risk of having um, any any dispersant or dispersed oil exposure with uh, with the subtitle uh, uh, benthic organisms. So we're trying to get this process ramped up as quickly as possible. The oil is starting to weather. There's a window of of effectiveness that we need to operate within. If the Unified Command and FOSC ask for the EU to work through this process, how long can we reasonably expect it to take? And what kind of staff do you need in the EU to get through this process? The ideal staff is going to be a dispersant technical specialist, somebody who understands dispersants and the limitations and what you're going to be using. You want to have your uh, resources at risk specialists so that you know what areas are off limits because of uh, particular sensitivities or not. You need to have a consultation process ready to roll in terms of uh, consulting with endangered species um, or even uh, historical properties, or if you're looking at um, tribal concerns and considerations, um, if, if it's areas that are adjacent or used um, in, for traditional use, all that consultation, you want to have it in ready to, to do that initial consultation right away. So you will need to have your, your dispersant specialist working, prepared to work with these, with these other parties um, and, and with the state. But it doesn't need to be a big, big team. As a matter of fact, it's better to, to, to develop the initial checklist with a small team and then and be able to reach out and do your consultation with, the, with your cohorts in the environmental unit. The SSC, of course, is going to be a, a big part of it as well. The SSC, because they are in direct contact with the FOSC, um, can short shorten any uh, concerns or questions that the FOSC may, may be thinking of or have um, before this actually, before it, sort of that preliminary check and, and uh, recommendation from the environmental unit is forwarded up to uh, the FOSC. So those, that's the group really right there. Um, a small group, you should have the SSC um, state uh, dispersion specialist working on that and then do the consultation process and then back up to um, Unified Command. The time that it takes, it doesn't take very long for the initial consultation. You want to make sure you've got your trajectories. <laughs> so you need to know where you're planning on applying this and, and what your window is. Um, you need to know what the oil weathering is going to look like so you can, you know, uh, again, the same SSC can be helping with the trajectories with, or you can run it or and run audio so you can see what the viscosity curve looks like and is this oil likely to emulsify or not within the period of time that you're planning on using this. Um, but those things can be done fairly quickly. Um, so, you know, with the, once you get the instruction from Unified Command that Yes, we're going to, we're going to launch this. You should be a, uh, that that small team can have a draft of uh, that checklist done within half an hour or less than an hour 
but then it's the consultation. Uh, and sometimes that can just, uh, sometimes it's, it's the people are there, they're very responsive. Other times it, it, it's painfully slow because you just can't get the right people um, for the consultation process. You know, even even the FOSC taking it to um, you know for a discussion with um, with the RRT can take some time, or it can be a very quick process. Also, um, it, these are all the variables that are out there. Uh, you know, exercises are one thing; real real situation is is usually another. Uh, having having done this sort of thing, you know, uh, doing a dispersant uh, plan application um, here in Washington, very straightforward because we have a really good set of tools to go with. Um, and well, and that's pretty much a, the same for the West Coast. Um, other places around the world, maybe not so much. And, uh, and, and uh, having done exercises on the north of us here, just uh, up on the Canadian side, um, we can go through the checklist. And if it's an exercise, you can actually get a pre-approval um, or an approval. Uh, but if you talk to most folks, uh, either the RO, you know, WCMRC, um, or talk to the Canadian Coast Guard or um, Ministry of Environment or Environment Canada and Cli Environment Climate Change Canada, you know, I probably don't want to waste your time going through the process if it's a real spill because it's, it's just the, the process is not streamlined um, to, to actually approve um, dispersants use, uh, certainly not out here on the West Coast. I participated in Can US Lance some years ago where dispersants was part of the exercise. The Canadians wouldn't actually give an approval. Technically, adding those chemicals to the water is also a violation of law. And we'll apply them if you want to. We'll decide whether to prosecute you for it later. I mean, you uh, are adding you are adding something else to the water. And I heard, had it, heard it described, I thought, really well by uh, a guy from Exxon years ago, the situation's bad. We know that this is not going to make it good, but it can make it less bad. I like that part, less bad, right? <laughs> and is the less bad that we're going to make it good enough, less bad enough to, to justify it? That's right, it's, it's the trade-off. It's the net environmental benefit of using or not using um, that countermeasure. That's exactly it. Yeah, and 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 doing it in an exercise is one thing. Doing it for real could be a a, a, a little bit different, and that's. Uh, I mean, uh, the on the, my, to mine, if I if I'm not mistaken, uh, the east coast of Canada actually has now um, a. a they're in a better position to consider dispersant use um, uh, on the East Coast. And of course it helps a lot that the Gulf Stream current sweeps up along the coast and carries it towards the middle of the Atlantic. Um, 
So that's on the positive side. Uh, over here on the West Coast, um, not it's not quite as straightforward. Well, and over there on the East Coast of Canada, they have offshore drilling, where they have the potential for ongoing releases. You know, it's a it's a different um, industry that's going on over there. Exactly, and they have a much stronger need to have a dispersant process because they're more likely to need it if something were to happen. Or they have the potential for something Deepwater Horizon-like to happen where we simply don't have that problem here on the West Coast. That's exactly it. You know, dispersants is just one countermeasure. You know, you got the in-situ burning. Uh, it's, it has its checklists and its considerations um, in a similar format. And particularly here in the Northwest, it's got you know, the annexes that help you go through that process. Um, you have shoreline cleaners, you know, that, that are going to help deal with some of the more persistent uh, oil if it, it, it makes it onto certain shorelines and how to, re, you know, improve and, and, and remove it from those shorelines. But so there's all these things that are outside of your, your tr what we call traditional response countermeasures. Um, and, and to the extent that, at least in, in, here in Washington that, uh, or in the Northwest, that you know, they've been thought and built around, a plan's been created that actually takes these into consideration and provides for a means to decide on whether you're gonna use it or not at, in a consultation process with, uh, you know, with the federal uh, representatives and state representatives and the uh, responsible party. So. It's a, and, and honestly, working around the world, I, 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 we have this advantage of having developed these tools to the extent that they are developed here in the Northwest as a, as a wonderful point of export to the rest of the world. I, I mean, in so many of the plans that I've helped work with uh, countries around the world, and, and I get asked to do a lot of the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, model courses for different countries around the world, um, taking these as examples of what can be done and how to streamline the process and, and tools that are readily available. It's, it's wonderful to be, be able to say, yes, there's a, these, these have been tried, tested, they've been used, and guess what? You don't have to start from scratch. You can take this, and and you you're already ahead of the uh, the game. Yep, I call that R and D: rip off and duplicate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you want to start from scratch? No, that's right. Uh, you don't want to. Not in this game. Not in this business. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. I mean, just try to get the best tools out there, so people have have the benefit of you know, what has been learned and gained elsewhere. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to doing this drill with you. If somebody wanted to reach out and contact Polaris for assistance with response plans or SCAD or NERDA, you'll come back on the show and we'll talk about NERDA separately, right? Well, I did, I did already give Greg a head, heads up warning. And I said, Greg, you know, you may be ta um, asked to come on board and, and do a session with 
Dan on uh, natural resource damage assessment. He's, uh, he's on board. So you don't have to listen to me again. You get to listen to Greg on this one. Well, I wouldn't mind listening to you, but we'll definitely do that one. We'll, we'll reach out and schedule it to him. But if somebody wanted to reach out and, and uh, for consultation help, do you want to provide an email address here at the end or phone number or both? Um, sure, it's uh, E. Taylor. So that's my first initial, Elliot, E. Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, at Polaris Applied Sciences dot com and sciences is plural sciences um but it's just one long string and then the yeah, phone number certainly feel free to call me uh at my cell phone's 206-660-5753 or our general office number is 425-823-4841 great dr elliot taylor Polaris Applied Sciences, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, Dan, it's a, my pleasure. I look forward to working with you here on the exercise. Be careful with what you dream up, okay? And uh, it's it's been a pleasure. And uh, great work with the podcast. Keep it up. I think this is this is super. Thank you for joining us in the tactics meeting. I learned a lot today, and I hope you did too. I spend most of my time in operations, so it's great to be able to talk to somebody like Dr. Taylor about the inner workings of the environmental unit. If you enjoyed the show, help us spread the word. Send a link to a friend, a colleague, send a tweet. If you would like to be on the show, you can email me my email address is my name, dan smiley at mac.com.